Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. On 28th of April, 1870, the flamboyantly dressed Miss Fanny Park and Miss Stella Bolton were arrested at the Strand Theatre in London. The case of the young men in women's clothes, as it would come to be known, rocked England then and makes for incredibly compelling reading today. Next up on New Books and Biography, I'm going to be talking with Neil McKenna about his new biography, entitled Fanny and Stella, The Young Men Who Shocked Victorian England. Hi, Neil. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could kick things off by telling us a bit about yourself. My name is Neil McKenna, and um, I'm a writer or an author. I don't really care which term is used. Um, I've been at it for more years than I care to remember. Uh, Indeed, more years than I can remember. And I was a journalist to begin with, um, and I fell into journalism by accident um, and ended up doing a lot of journalism for a long time and then I wrote a book I wanted to write a book on Oscar Wilde about his sexuality Um, and after many vicissitudes and many years I finally found uh, an agent and after many years the agent finally found a publisher and that's really how I became a published author Um, and now I've just published my new book Fanny and Stella The Young Men Who Shocked Victorian England I'd like to start off with some of the questions that biographers always like to ask each other. So what brought this story to your attention and why did you decide to write about Fanny and Stella? Um, Well, after I published Oscar Wilde, I didn't really know what I wanted to do because Oscar Wilde was such a huge undertaking. It was my first biography and it had meant it had started out as a sort of 80 or 90,000 word book. Um, and it ended up as a quarter of a million words and as a sort of full-blown biography. And it was so exhausting and um, draining that, um, you know, after it was published, I sort of needed to lie in a darkened room for a long time, and I was ill as well. I had to have an operation. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I was looking around for subjects. And uh, my then-publisher, Mark Booth, at Century... Um, took me for lunch at the Ivy, which is actually quite unusual because publishers are terribly mean. Um, unless you're Martin Amos, and then, you know, you know, riches are lavished upon you. But um, I got taken for lunch at the Ivy, and we had a long chat. And out of that lunch, an idea to do a biography of Lawrence of Arabia came up. And I thought, okay, fine, this is you know, he's quite an interesting character. So I went off and did quite a lot of reading and quite a lot of research. But I, I was struggling because, first of all, I didn't find Lawrence of Arabia particularly interesting or attractive. Um, I mean, it's true that there was the gang rape by the Turks. Um, and I think that was a sort of key moment in his life, um, which was also he tried to kind of replicate forever after but um 
I didn't feel that I could bring anything new to it. Um, and I'm very much a research-driven biographer. I mean, you know, I really like the research. It really, I really get involved in the research. I over-research every book I write, you know, only a fraction of what I read and make notes on and find do I put in a book. So um, it's a kind of inverted pyramid, you know. It's a very thick uh, top of research that sort of boiled down into, you know, a relatively short book. So I felt that um, there was nothing really new uh, left for me to discover. There were no secrets. Secondly, I felt that he wasn't really a very interesting personality. Uh, well, he was interesting, but not interesting to me. Uh, thirdly, I read John Mack book um, A Prince of Our Disorder and I thought wow this is an amazing book and I don't think I could even come close to it let alone better it or even equal it and then I tried to read Seven Pillars of Wisdom um, and you know read half a chapter and gave up and then I kept trying and kept trying and kept trying and finally decided that you know I didn't think that I could do Lawrence of Arabia I didn't really feel that my heart was in it um, because for me, it's got to be new. I mean, and, and people will then turn around and say, well, yes, you wrote a biography of Oscar Wilde, and how many biographies of Oscar Wilde are there? Well, there are hundreds, but, you know, over 30% of my material was brand new mm -hmm. um, in that Oscar Wilde biography. Uh, a further 15 or 20% was abstruse and recondite and had perhaps been published, you know, 80 or 90 years ago and been forgotten about. So I did feel that I was plowing new furrows with Oscar Wilde, and I did have a very new interpretation of Oscar Wilde. And I think, you know, it's worked because um, nine years on, um, the book is still in print and still selling well. So um, I'm pretty pleased about that. So I didn't want to do, and this is a very long answer to a very short question, but I didn't want to do a book that was um, treading the same old ground. So I woke up one morning and um, Fanny and Stella popped into my head. I could say a very rude joke and say I woke up one morning and thought of Fanny, but I won't. <laughs> um, and that was in um, September... 2004 mm -hmm. and that's significant because actually I discovered later that Stella had died in September 1904 so it was a hundred years almost to the well certainly to the month but possibly to the day so maybe there was a little bit of channeling going on um, and we should have the X music um, theme tune now. Anyway, so I woke up and I thought of Fanny and Stella and I thought, you know, I wonder if there's any mileage in that. I mean, there had been a few little things on them. Uh, Neil Bartlett wrote about them in Who Was That Man, which is a great book. Um, you know, a little kind of vignette of them. Uh, there'd been a couple of academic uh, papers on them. Um and references to them here and there, little sort of occasional references. They were very much a footnote in history. Mm. And I assumed that because they were a footnote that there wasn't really enough material. But as I started to research, I discovered that there was 
a, a trial transcript, you know, an eight-inch thick trial transcript in the public record office or the National Archives, as it's called now. Um, some letters, not enough letters, and some depositions. Um, and also lots of contemporary newspaper coverage. So I sort of thought to myself, you know, there is enough material here to write a short book. So, And, and I was also excited by them because I realized that this was an opportunity to write a book about two young camp um, gay uh, cross-dressing young men, uh, which was could be totally written about in a kind of unmediated way that I wouldn't be having to scythe through the accumulated historiography around them. I could just write about them um, in the language of the time and using the documents of the time. Mm -hmm. So I think every quote in my book... um, don't don't hold me to this, but virtually every quote in my book, I'll say, is a contemporary quote. It's from the 1870s, perhaps the 1880s, perhaps the 1860s. Um, but it's all written, you know, in a contemporary voice. All the material is drawn from contemporary sources. So I'm not having to sort of go back to... F- to, to sort of wade through acres and acres and acres of later interpretation. And I also realized that it was an opportunity for me to write a book that was totally fresh. I mean, no one had written a book on Fanny and Stella before. No one had written a book on drag queens uh, at the 1870s before. And yet here we had this amazing story. And I did go on and do a great deal more research and did find out a great deal more about them. Um, But that's probably another story. Do you remember when you first heard the story of them? Did it come up during the Oscar Wilde research or was it earlier? I think it came up. um, I think I'd read um, the Neil Bartlett book, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 years ago in the mists of time, uh, probably when I was stoned um, during my long period of being a cannabis smoker. Um, And so they probably kind of, you know, found a little niche in my brain then. Mm -hmm. But certainly they came up um, when I was researching the Oscar Wilde book and when I was writing it because I mentioned them in the Oscar Wilde book. So I was quite pleased that they sort of came out of the Oscar Wilde book, really, because it was a... a, I mean, I'm a a gay man. I mean, this may be a surprise to some people, uh, but I'm a gay man, and I don't really want to write about, you know, um, heterosexuals. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think biographers have to be engaged with their subject. I think they have to be passionately engaged and passionately involved. Um, And all biographies are in a sense autobiographies because mm-hmm. they reflect the preoccupations of the and the interests of the biographer so i think you have to be you know you have to write about something that you feel strongly about and i you know um my agent um andrew loney um mentioned uh that you know uh uh, and un- I won't mention his name, but a, a well-known Victorian ph- philanthropist, his his sort of charity wanted a- someone to write the biography of this 
well-known Victorian philanthropist using some, you know, new papers and things. Um, it just wasn't me, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I can't write about, you know, um, good Christian, hard-working souls of the 19th century. It wouldn't feel right. It mm-hmm. didn't fit. Um, you've got to stick to what you feel passionate about. And so I want... And, and, I also feel very strongly that, you know, history is written by the victors. Um, You know, if the Nazis had won the Second World War, we would all be reading a different history now. And I think that gay history has um, hardly been written at all, but what little has been written um, the, 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 the sort of tenor and the cast of, of, of gay history has been written by heterosexual people and it is the story of crime and punishment and morality and immorality and disease and death mm-hmm. and, you know, execution. So I really wanted to write a book um, about gay people that was written by a gay man and that was also... Um, written on gay terms. I mean, and that's probably difficult for you perhaps to get your head round um, because, you know, it may well be that you're heterosexual. I don't want to assume that you are, but it may well be that people listening to this are heterosexual. And that means that their lives and their cultures, um, they belong to the dominant um the dominant sort of mindset, the dominant culture, the victorious culture. So they never really have to question um, the fundamental beliefs of society. They have to, basically, they can just grow up and they may not like what they see, but they're part of it. Uh, If you're gay, you are, in order to, to become gay, you have to be prepared to reject everything mm-hmm. and abandon everything and challenge every belief that you've ever had. So I wanted to write a book that was really written from the perspective of a gay man, a book about gay men by a gay man, but written in a gay way. And that's probably hard to explain. You're probably thinking, what's this old queen droning on about? But no, no. This actually really... comes back, yeah, this comes back to one of my, my future questions, which I'll go ahead and ask now, is that I was going to ask that it's written in a rather novelistic style, but um, the prose, like, it, it's written with a great authority, and I don't think that a, a heterosexual writer, I think they would have been, I don't want to say squeamish, but it wouldn't have been as graphic, and it wouldn't have been as gripping, it would have been a very, very different style if written by someone else, and I think that's a really interesting, it reaffirms your point that as a biographer, you have to have a connection to what you're writing about because that makes the writing better and more vivid and it helps you. You're uniquely qualified to tell the story that you're telling. Yes. I mean, on the subject of, of graphicness, I mean, one of the big... Um, I think it's a Marmite book. I think you either love it or hate mm-hmm. it. Right. Um, you know, t- Professor Terry Eagleton hated it and said uh, he hated it in, you know, 50 different ways in his very long article. Mm-hmm. Although there was a sort of curious prurience in his in his review of my mm-hmm. book. You know, he was pruriently interested in the sex 
uh, of the uh, the sex uh, sex detail of the book. I actually don't think the book is particularly graphic. Mm. Um, I don't think it's particularly rude. Um, I think it's mostly about love and a bit about sex and a bit about syphilis and a bit about um, terrible, humiliating police examinations um, of Fanny and Stella. But I don't feel it's graphic, and I'm very... um, I'm always slightly surprised and slightly shocked when people say, oh, it's it's rude or it's graphic or it's um, too much information or um, it, it, it's, it's sort of luxuriating um, in, in, in being shocking. I don't actually think it's any of those um, things at all. I think right. it's quite a quiet book. Um, and I don't feel it's particularly rude. And, you know, when you compare it for example, with Fifty Shades of Grey, which is, you know, S&M, semi-soft, semi-hard pornography, I feel that Fanny and Stella, you know, is rather like the unmarried maiden aunt at the village fate. <laughs> um, so again, I think, you know, it's being judged by a, 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 on a different criterion mm-hmm. from other books. I mean, nobody says that um, Fifty Shades of Grey is rude or shocking. Right. Um, they say it's badly written. I, I mean, I haven't read it, so... Or no, it is, only it is badly written. It. It's, it's badly written or, or, you know, it's arousing or it's soft porn or it's mm-hmm. semi-hard porn or whatever. But nobody actually says, oh, it's shocking, and, and, and that becomes the central feature of the book. And I think, again, this is entirely about a heterosexual audience. Mm-hmm. Um, responding to gay history and it's 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 sort of slightly irritating because you know not only have heterosexuals persecuted gay men for sort of at least two millennia not only in Britain you know have they um, uh, hung us quartered us stuck uh, hot pokers up our bottoms imprisoned us humiliated us uh, castrated us um, um, executed us for all the, that time. Uh, not only that, but then they've written our history, and then when, when, and when they've, when they've sort of done all that, they've taken away our history, they've punished us, um, they've destroyed us, they've forced us into suicide and all the rest of it. They then turn around and say, well, your history is too shocking for us. And that's why I'm not, this is a gay book. It's not a heterosexual book. I'm not writing for a heterosexual audience. Mm -hmm. If heterosexuals want to read it, that's absolutely great. And I'm thrilled that they do. And I'm thrilled that some of them at least like it. But I'm not writing for them. Um, So I'm not not treating with them, if you like. Mm -hmm. It's not a book that is written to somehow be, you know, judged by heterosexuals. Um, it's entirely about, um, it's a gay book about gay history written for gay people. And anyone else who would like to read it is welcome. And that may sound slightly odd and slightly barking, <laughs> but that's how it is. Yeah. I have to say, just because I come in it from a At bi- this point, you're mm-hmm. going to say thank you very much for your interview we'll broadcast it perhaps in 10 years oh no no i'm not done with you yet because I, I come at things looking at them from biography so i wasn't considering it from a sexual context at all 
And I did struggle with it because there were moments of like, oh, you can't do this in biography. And then I was like, oh my God, it's awesome that he's doing this in biography. This is just incredible. What can't I do in biography? Um, not even the graphicness, just um, some of the style of the writing and the, the characterizations, because it was somewhat novelistic, but it was colorful and it was vivid language. And I thought that was really, really wonderful. And so it really made the, the set pieces, the scenes come alive and the characters come alive. Um, I just thought it was really, really well, well who done. writes the rules of biography? I know. <laughs> I, 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 sorry, I mean, I'm not aware of this, but mm-hmm. perhaps you're going to tell me that, you know, there is a, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of, uh, you know, a law of um, 1922, which tells writers how biographies must be written, and that there are conventions and canons about biography that we must follow and obey. I'm not aware of those. Mm-hmm. I mean, perhaps you could enlighten me, Erlene. Oh, no, no. I think they, they're unwritten, and I don't want to follow them. So it was definitely... Sorry, that's... That, that was the cat. That's Lupin <laughs> walking across the thing. Um, no, I mean, it, it, I think this is... The, uh, this is another thing that I find rather irritating, is that a few critics have said, oh, well, you know... Well, Terry Eagleton said he's made up large chunks of it, which simply isn't true. I haven't made up large chunks of it. Um, what I have done is I have taken lots and lots and lots of facts and I have tried to um, make them work together as a narrative and to offer characterization. But those characterizations are based on facts. Mm -hmm. They're based on observations. Uh, But I don't believe that biography, and in fact, nowhere do I state that Fanny and Stella is a biography. In fact, Waterstones, I discover, don't don't put it in their biography section. They put it in their Victorian history section. Um, So I don't. I don't actually say it's a biography. I don't say that it's anything. Um, I just say it's a work of non-fiction. And I think that if we had to put a label on it, we'd call it literary non-fiction rather than biography. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't believe um, that we should all play follow my leader and join a long line or have a kind of herd instinct where biographies have to be uh, what most people think they have to be. I'll quote you a line from John Betjeman's The Arrest of Oscar Wilde at the Cadogan Hotel, um, where he's paraphrasing Oscar Wilde, and he says, approval of what is approved of is as false as a well-kept vow. <laughs> and I don't believe that biography should be, or non-fiction, uh, should be subject to rules or conventions or legislation. Um, I, do, I simply don't believe that. And, you know, I don't think it's that radical what I've done. I mean, if you look back at Peter Aykroyd's biography of Dickens, you know, 20 odd years ago, um, he was using uh, writing fictional encounters between Dickens and his characters to illuminate Dickens's life. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever read that. I've heard of that. It's come up before, yeah. So I, I don't believe that, um, and you know, and I think Peter Aykroyd is a, one of our great writers. Mm-hmm. So I don't believe that biography necessarily has to be stolid, um, you know, 
tied down by a million footnotes, like um, Gulliver had, you know, was tied down in Lilliput by a million <laughs> tiny little silken ropes. And I think there's a sort of terribly pernicious and creeping academization of non-fiction, of biography, where the rules and conventions uh, are decreed and dictated by academics who feel that they have uh, the right and um, the sanction to uh, decide what biography or non-fiction is or isn't. Mm -hmm. And I simply disagree with that. I'm not an academic. I don't work in a university. I don't think that people who work in universities have any right to tell me what to write in my books. They have a right to read them and they have a right to not like them. Of course they do. Everyone has a right to hate a book. But they don't, you know, they, academics accrete unto themselves a sort of sense that they are the guardians of the flame, that they are the arbiters of taste, that, you know, they sort of the watchers and the recorders. And I don't think that's true. I think writing should be free. Mm -hmm. And I think writers should be free to write how they want to write. And then people should be free to read it or not read it. It's as simple as that. I agree completely. Good. <laughs> Okay, so um, what sources were most helpful to you? I know that you mentioned the transcripts, which were, you had the complete transcripts, which was a really rare thing for Victorian cases, correct? It's uh, very rare. I mean, lots and lots of um, Victorian trials uh, did, were, were, you know, recorded um, in shorthand. Um, some of them weren't, some of them were. We don't really know how many were and how many weren't. But uh, lots of m important cases generally were. Um, but over the years, a lot of these transcripts have simply been lost, destroyed, bombed, thrown away, put in a skip, blah, blah, blah. I mean, uh, the, a very good example is the transcript of the trial of Oscar Wilde. I think it's the first trial. Uh, not the trial where he sues the Marcus of Queensbury, but the first criminal trial. And um, that was Montgomery Hyde cobbled, to, cobbled it together from newspaper reports years ago. But then when the Oscar Wilde exhibition in 2000 at the British Library came up, someone came in with a box of manuscripts, including the transcript of the trial and including, um, you know, the... Uh, uh, depositions of the male prostitutes that Queensbury had, Queensbury's detectives had hunted down. So things do turn up, but you know that's rare. So it was rare that the um, state trial of Fanny and so there were there were basically um, three. Well, there were two and a bit trials. There was the trial of Fanny and Stella in Bow Street Magistrates Court, um, and then there was a sort of a day or so in um, the Old Bailey, which was a sort of grand jury trial, where which wasn't really acted upon. Nothing really happened as a real result of that. And then there was the state trial in Westminster Hall, where before the Lord Chief Justice, where the Attorney General prosecuted and the Solicitor General assisted. And I think because it was a state trial in Westminster Hall, and that you know that those trials are about treason. 
there, you know, Walter Raleigh was tried in Westminster Hall, you know, Charles I was tried in Westminster Hall. Um, those sort of great theatrical uh, state trials, trials uh, which are really about the sort of conscience and the mood of the country, I think they were recorded, but very few of them survive. And how that trial, which was taken down in shorthand um, by clerks from Messrs. Walsh and Co. of um, Little College Street in Westminster, uh, and then transcribed back from the shorthand into a dozen clerkly hands, how and why that survived and was kept, I don't know. But I think it's a very interesting story. Um, because it must have been kept in the office of the Treasury Solicitor, and then, you know, it must have been eventually handed over to the uh, what was the Public Record Office and then taken to queue. So it is a miracle. It's, some of the things are incomplete because Miss Anne Empton, the Dragon of Davis Street, handed over 2,000 letters to Inspector Thompson, but there's only about 30 letters now. So a lot of them were lost or thrown away. But, you know, it, it, it's a miracle it survived. And it's wonderful that it did because it's one of the very few important documents of gay history. So this is sort of a delinquent question coming half an hour in. But who were... Oh, Fanny? I love delinquent. I know, right? I think we should talk about them now. Um, who were Fanny and Stella? Fanny and Stella were two um, young men. Fanny was the son of Judge Alexander Park, so he was upper middle class, um, very upper middle class. Um, I mean, they lived in a house in Wimpole Street, and uh, Judge Park was a respected judge. Stella was the son of a failed stockbroker turned wine merchant turned something or other turned shipbroker. Um, so their family, Stella's family, was a lot uh, was was what we would call middle class to lower middle class. They were engaged at, at the lower end of trade. Um, although Stella's mother had delusions of grandeur. Um, so they were two middle-class young men, although to say that they were middle-class suggests that there was a sort of commonality between them. In fact, there was quite a gulf between them in class terms in the 19th century. But they, we don't know how they met. Um, they may have met through Fanny's older brother, Harry, who was a gay young man about town, but on the run, having been convicted of um, indecently or charged with indecently assaulting a policeman in, policeman in Weymouth Mews. So they met and they became friends and sisters and they dragged up and they went around um, theatres and music halls, sometimes in drag, sometimes out of drag, sometimes half in and half out. They were effeminate, they were queenie, they ran around in a great gaggle with other men, they wore makeup. They were extremely camp, they were funny, they were brave, they were courageous. And when they weren't going around theatres and music halls, they were on the streets um, selling themselves as male prostitutes in drag. I mean, Stella was twice arrested on the Haymarket in drag um, before the arrest of 1870 for soliciting. So how did they come to be arrested? 
Well, um, <clears throat> they were arrested on the night of the 28th of April, 1870, as they came out of the Strand Theatre in drag with Mr. Hugh Mundell, who was a, a young beau that they picked up, who was infatuated with Stella, although he said he didn't know that she was a man. Um, he'd met them in male costume and thought that they were women dressed as men, and then he'd seen them in female costume and thought that they were women, even though they said they were men. He didn't believe them. And um, Mr. Cecil Sissy Thomas, who ran away, and everybody assumed that they were just being arrested because they were in drag, but it emerged um, over the course of the next month or two or three that actually they'd been under police surveillance for a year. Um, and that um, Stella, who'd come back from Edinburgh a fortnight earlier and been staying in Wakefield Street, a policeman had been on duty day and night outside um, Miss, Miss Martha Stacey's establishment in Wakefield Street, watching their comings and goings. Then it emerged that um, the police doctor who examined them the morning after their arrest, um, you know, just happened to be outside Bow Street Magistrates Court, and that a week earlier, Inspector Thompson had just happened to call on him at his home and that he just happened to have a copy of Tardew's book on how to spot a sodomite on him. So, and then there was the Beadle of Burlington Arcade who said that he'd been getting up evidence for the police and that he'd spoken to Inspector Thompson the week before their arrest. So suddenly a slightly different picture emerges that it wasn't a, a haphazard accidental uh, arrest of two young men in drag. Um, who'd been behaving badly in a theater, but actually they'd been watched, surveilled, and that there had been some kind of conspiracy to arrest them and put them on trial. And we're not sure why they were arrested. It may well have been that Stella's relationship with Lord Arthur, Cl uh, Lord Arthur Pelham Clinton, who was the son of the late Duke of Newcastle and a former MP and the godson of Gladstone may have had something to do with it or that um, the authorities considered that young men in drag uh, homosexuality was an increasing and visible problem and that they wanted to do something about it in the way that um, British governments like to do things they like to sort of have public uh, to, to make examples of people. And I suspect that it's that latter case that's more likely. But certainly, there's very strong evidence of a conspiracy. Witnesses were paid. You know, we found uh, ledgers from the Treasury, the Treasury ledgers, which survive to this day in the National Archives, recording payments to witnesses, recording payments to the policemen involved. It's all very murky and very fishy. I want to come back to the trial in just a second, but first, if we could go back to Lord Arthur, because I thought it was really interesting how they, were, how he and Stella were able to live somewhat conventionally. Yes, well, it was, um, it was very odd. Um, it was very odd. Um, they lived in Southampton Street in Mrs. Louisa Peck's establishment, and the maids there couldn't really work out whether Stella was a man or a woman. 
most people thought that he was a woman, although he sometimes dragged up. Some people thought that sometimes he was a woman and sometimes he was a man. There's a great deal of sort of comic Victorian confusion about it. Um, then they got, they left Mrs. Peck's establishment, and we don't really know why. Um, and they went to Miss Anne Empson's establishment, and we know from her testimony, which was much clearer, that Lord Arthur had taken these rooms in Miss Empson's house in Davis Street in Mayfair, and said, oh, by the way, you know, is it all right if my cousin from the country, Ernest Bolton, you know, comes and stays when he's in town. And Miss Empson had weakly agreed to that. So that's probably, you know, how they lived together. And of course, it wasn't unusual for men to share chambers. Um, in the 19th century, it wasn't unusual for men to share beds in the 19th century. I mean, you know, we, the idea of men sleeping together uh, was, you know, common, really, until certainly the middle of the 20th century. And the, all the talk about whether Abraham Lincoln was gay or not, you know, comes down a lot to the fact that he would share a bed with friends. Mm -hmm. And whether or not sex took place, we don't know. Of course, propinquity has its actions, but um, I think that um, it was comparatively easy for two men to live together. Uh, but certainly in Southampton Street, Stella seemed to live with him um, as a woman um, in drag and occasionally in male costume. Um, and in Davis Street, uh, as a young man, although they weren't in Davis Street very long. And of course, that's where um, Fanny, unfortunately, slept with Lord Arthur, which, of course, you know, destroyed the relationship. <laughs> of course, we all love Fanny. <laughs> so this is a terribly broad question. Um, but what was at stake in Fanny and Stella's trial? Well, what was at stake for them... Um, was um, a long prison sentence and, you know, a, a, a certainly a, a, a very uh, unpleasant um, and early death. I mean, the sentence, that, it's a very curious thing. They were not actually charged with acts of sodomy. Um, had they been charged with acts of sodomy, there was probably enough evidence to find them guilty. They were charged with conspiracy to commit acts of sodomy. So no one really knows how they would have been sentenced. Um, to be convicted of sodomy in 1871 would mean a minimum sentence of 10 years and a maximum sentence of life. So um, I think had they been found guilty, they would have almost certainly got 10 years, um, if not, you know, a life sentence. Mm -hmm. uh, but talking, you know, the difference between 10 years and life is, 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 is nugatory because actually you, for two effeminate young men going to a Victorian prison and doing hard labor, um, they would have been dead within a year 
or 18 months at the outset. I mean, I know from my researches into Oscar Wilde that, you know, imprisonment with hard labor was generally regarded as a death sentence. Most, pe- most prisoners lasted, you know, between six months and, and a year and then died of, you know, dysentery, malnutrition, um, or whatever else. So, uh, and when you say hard labor, it was backbreaking. You know, you'd turn a crank, which was turning paddles through a vat of sand. And you'd do that for, you know, 10 hours a day. Well, and you'd live on, on gruel and black bread. And gruel was sort of very, very thin porridge and black bread was, you know, rubbish bread. So you, you would simply die very, very quickly. I mean, someone should do a book on mortality in Victorian prisons. I mean, it was a, a horror story. So if they'd been found guilty, um, and whatever sentence they'd got, you know, if, it's, if it was a sentence of a year or over, then they would have almost certainly died. And if they didn't die, their health would have been totally wrecked. So I think their lives were at stake for them personally. For society, it was a more curious and complex thing because actually the Attorney General in his opening remarks basically said, you know, no one will be more pleased than I will if we find these young men innocent because that means that sodomy hasn't broken forth in this land, that there isn't this terrible continental, specifically French vice of sodomy spreading like a contagion, infecting. Um, it was like a plague. So that was, that was what, you know, the Attorney General hoped. And then he said, but if they are guilty of this, then at least we can take strenuous measures to root it out. So for society, what was at stake in the trial was, you know, the belief of the, the, the question whether or not, you know, sodomy had broken out in England. Uh, and if it had, um, then how we would extirpate it. And if it hadn't, then everybody could breathe a huge sigh of relief and say this was just an accidental outbreak. It's a bit like bird flu, mm-hmm. you know. If a few people get bird flu and it's contained and the World Health Organization, Organization rush in with masks and spray disinfectant everywhere and the outbreak is quelled, we all heave a collective sigh of relief. But if bird flu comes in and suddenly hundreds of people all over the country are going down with it, we have mass hysteria and panic. And I think that was true of sodomy. It wasn't uh, a sexual act. It was a contagion. Mm-hmm. You have a truly astonishing cast of characters here. Did you have any particular favorites? I love Fanny, of course. <laughs> uh, who can't? I mean, I, I love Fanny because Fanny was a trier. She was a very plain, mm-hmm. not pretty, uh, and has a, had to struggle and fight for everything she got in, you know, the sex and romance department. I feel rather like that myself. Um, and... Stella was beautiful and astonishing and talented, but also rather moody and petulant. So I love Fanny. I love Miss Anne Empson, the Dragon of Daisy mm-hmm. Street. I think she's wonderful. Um, 
And, you know, it is true that Reynolds' newspaper called her a lady of determined appearance. <laughs> and when you read her testimony, I mean, she's so combative and horrible <laughs> and feisty. You can't help but love her. I mean, she is a, a, she is a dragon among dragons. Mm-hmm. She's a monster, monster sacre. Um, but I like all the characters, really, because I've lived with them for quite mm-hmm. a while. And I think you have to fall in love with your characters a little bit, even the ones that you don't like. You have to have a relationship. And they're like sort of terrible members of your family that you, you have to sort of somehow come to terms with. What do you see as the legacy long term of Fanny and Stella? Well, I think legacy is rather a big word mm-hmm. for, you know, a small book. I mean, it's a book about, it's a gay, we're going back to gay history now, so you can take a Valium and doze off or <laughs> stop recording. Um, it's, it's a, I think it was, I can't remember his first name, it was either Israel or Isaiah Zangville, the Jewish East End philosopher of the 19th century. And, he wrote something once that I read and it stayed with me, which is for every human affirmation, there are a thousand negations. Well, I feel that Fanny and Stella's book is an affirmation of the lives of two young, gay, cross-dressing, queenie men in the 19th century in a sea of a thousand negations. So I think it's one little bright point Um, in an otherwise dark and gloomy um, perspective on gay history. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm pleased that I've written that. I'm pleased that it's sold incredibly well. I don't think that the sales now can be down just to gay people. I think straight people must be reading it and I'm really pleased about that I mean I did as I said before rather combatively rather like Miss Anne Empson I didn't write it for straight people Uh, and if they read it you know that's great Um, and I'm but actually it's more than great I'm really pleased that straight people are reading it and I'm really pleased that they're getting a perspective on on gay history and what it was like I mean (laughs) I think it's very easy in 2013 in metropolitan London, where you can be who you are and what you are. We live a privileged lifestyle where we have choices and we have the force of law behind gay civil liberties now. It's very easy to become complacent. Um, I was born just before the law on homosexuality was decriminalized in 1967. And, you know, go back, when I was born, men were still being forced to undergo aversion therapy, which you may or may not have heard of. Have you heard of aversion therapy? Mm -hmm. You know, we had a holocaust in this country where um, tens of thousands of gay men were arrested over a 25-year period and convicted and sent, either sent to prison or offered aversion therapy. And aversion therapy consisted of being shown photographs of naked men and then having electric shocks administered to you, often to your genitals, um, or being forced to drink emetics, substances that would make you vomit. Um, I think that's torture by any other name. Um, We're still waiting for an apology. We're still waiting for reparation from the government, 
from the police, from the psychiatric profession. All of this happened within living memory. Not my living memory, but the living memory of older friends of mine mm -hmm. and their older friends. I, so I don't think Fanny and Stella is just a frivolous book about two young drag queens who used to drag up and got off. It's a very important part of our gay history and how we try to survive and try to express ourselves. And one of the great things about Fanny and Stella is that they were totally unrepentant. <laughs> they didn't apologize about offending people or upsetting people. They basically just got into drag and they went for it. And I really admire their chutzpah and their courage and their bravery and their sense of joie de vivre and the fun that they had um, because it was very, very important and it was very unusual and they were the ones who survived. Tens of thousands didn't. I'm still waiting, by the way, for the British government to apologize for sending Pink Triangle prisoners liberated from Nazi concentration camps back to German prisons, mm -hmm. which I think was an unforgivable crime. Completely. But nobody cares because history is written by the victors. Nobody has even begun to question these things, whether, whether the psychiatric profession should apologize or whether the British government should express some kind of apology or make some kind of reparation. Nobody's asking these questions because nobody thinks they need to be asked because the dominant culture is heterosexual. Mm -hmm. So I'm not asking straight people to go out and beat themselves up or slash their wrists with grief and dismay, but I'm actually asking them to consider just for a moment what it's like, what it's been like for gay men over two millennia of recorded history. It's not been good. It's not been good in the last century for gay men in Britain. It's got much, much better. But in, you know, if you were young and gay in 1955, it wasn't that good. And if you were Alan Turing, a computer genius, forced to be injected with estrogen instead of, you know, that Alan Turing was told, well, you can eat it, you can be injected with estrogen, which is chemical castration, or you can go to prison. No wonder he killed himself. So that's what it's about. These are serious points. And unfortunately, gay history either comes down to the frivolous or the gloomy. I think the two can be combined, and I think in Fanny and Stella they are combined. They faced a terrible prospect of going to prison and dying in prison, um, and yet at the same time they were frivolous and silly and had bags of joie de vivre. <laughs> Am I depressing, you know? No, no, it's a beautiful book, and I really enjoyed reading it because it does combine that. It is, does carry the weight of really serious, important, and overlooked history while also being a good read and being an interesting story and really uplifting in the end. Thank you. Any more questions? Um, any idea who you're going to be writing about next? No, but, you know... I wouldn't be surprised if it was a book about gay history. I think that would be, from hearing you talk about it, that would be incredibly fascinating, and I think you're the person to do it. 
I've been talking today with Neil McKenna about his new book, Fanny and Stella, The Young Men Who Shocked Victorian England. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>